Welcome, everyone, to the Penn Primary Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kendall Williams. So we're back with another series of great episodes, and we have a wonderful schedule here for the fall. And I thought we'd start out with a big success story, one that affects us all. We now have virtually universal screening for hepatitis C, and hepatitis C has been a real success over the last 10 or 20 years. So I brought on two experts to talk to us about it. Dr. Vin Ray is an associate professor of medicine at Penn and also a professor of epidemiology and biostats. He is the co-director for the clinical core of the Penn Center for AIDS Research and does a lot of work with hepatitis C as well. Vin, thank you for coming. Dr. Jessie Torgensen is an assistant professor of medicine at Penn. She is the clinical director for the Center for Viral Hepatitis at Penn Presbyterian Medical Center. And with Dr. Loray as a member of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Penn. Thanks, Jesse. So this is a very interesting subject because we all know something about hepatitis C, but even I have found, and I try to keep up with these things, that things have progressed so quickly in the last 10 years or so that it's been a little tough to keep up. But I want to start with the basics and just go over the virus itself, how you get it, how common it is, and so forth. And Jesse, maybe we'll start with that. How does one get hepatitis C? Yeah, a great question. So hepatitis C is predominantly transmitted through exposure to infected blood and, and to a lesser extent to exposure to bodily secretions. The most effective way for hepatitis C to be transmitted is it's really through that blood exposure. And that's really where we saw a lot of the risk derived in our birth cohort or baby boomers, those born between 1945 and 1965 with prior exposure to blood products that may not have been screened effectively for hepatitis C up until about 1992 when rigorous screening was really implemented. But this is also why we've seen hepatitis C emerge as really a major concern in people who inject drugs because blood containing the virus can contaminate not only needles and syringes that are used to inject and potentially shared, but can also and contaminate materials used to repair drugs, including water, filters, and cookers. Additionally, hepatitis C can be transmitted via non-injection drug use through, again, bloody contamination of, of straws and pipes and the potential for that contamination to be virus inoculated into mucosa that has been traumatized either through snorting or smoking drugs and then contributing to that acquisition. Other means, as I alluded to, the bodily secretions, so we can see transmission through sex, although it's relatively ineffective. Sexual transmission, again, in heterosexual sex and non-discordant couples is pretty rare, somewhere between less than 0.07% per year. Where we do see a bit higher risk with sexual exposure, sexual transmission is among those who have unprotected anal sex, multiple sex partners or chemsex where there may be a disinhibition with regards to barrier protection and such. So that, that's one of the reasons why oftentimes men who have sex with men or people who engage in chemsex are recommended for more regular screening. Lastly, I think transmission can occur with perinatal infection, and this is becoming more and more recognized, but currently estimates uh, suggest maybe about 6% of pregnancies with hepatitis C will result in infection in the baby. So the people at risk are primarily those with a history of intravenous drug use, but those other groups that you mentioned, what are some of the cohorts that we're seeing now, other than the baby boomer cohort? Is there another group that's sort of at risk? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with people who inject drugs or people with substance use disorder. We're really seeing 
that this distribution of people with new infections or, or newly recognized infections is really at a bimodal distribution across the age groups with a really impressive peak over the last 10 years in people between 18 and 45, and really owing to the explosion of the opioid epidemic. So our clinic population is certainly representative of that, where half are, are young people whose major risk factor is injection drug use or substance use, while the other half are those in the birth cohort era. I should just add that new hepatitis C infections in the U.S. have nearly tripled since 2010. And as Jesse alluded to, really driven by the opioid epidemic, and particularly in persons who are between 20 and 40 years of age, so a much younger group. And we'll see that cohort continuing to progress through the stages. So let's talk about the natural history, because it's a virus that usually doesn't produce acute symptoms, right? And most of the problems are down the line. I don't know that I've seen that much acute hepatitis C, but both of you have. What is it like? Yeah, so it could really span the spectrum from asymptomatic to a clinician will identify fluctuations in liver aminotransferases to, in very rare cases, acute hepatitis C can go on to fulminant hepatitis. So given the fact that it's such a spectrum and the fact that in 55 to 86% of individuals with acute hepatitis C, they will go on to chronic hepatitis C infection. And then that chronic hepatitis C will lead to liver inflammation, liver fibrosis. And typically about 20% of individuals in 20 years with hepatic fibrosis will go on to cirrhosis. And then once you get cirrhosis, you're at risk for primary liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, and end-stage liver disease, decompensated cirrhosis. But 14 to 45% of individuals who are exposed to hepatitis C and get acutely infected will spontaneously clear. And so when you see these patients in clinical practice, you'll see that their hepatitis C antibody is positive, but their hepatitis C RNA is negative with no history of antiviral therapy. And you said that that number's about 15% will clear? Yeah, I mean, it's generally about 15%, about 85%. I mean, the range is anywhere from 55 to 86% will go on to chronic, and the range is around 14 to 45% for spontaneous clearance. But typically, the rough rules are 85 and 15. 85 will go on to chronic infection, and 15 will spontaneously clear. Yeah. You know, I remember this 15%, just even going back 15 or 20 years when I learned about hepatitis C, it was 15% would clear 15, now you can correct me on this, Van, but 15% of those who do not clear will go on to cirrhosis. And then there was something like 15% of those who become cirrhosis will develop hepatocellular cancer. Maybe you can correct me on those numbers. Yeah, you're close. Typically about 20% of individuals in 20 years will develop cirrhosis. And then once individuals with chronic hepatitis C have cirrhosis, around 2 to 4% per year will develop primary liver failure, hepatic decompensation. And that's characterized by the complications of cirrhosis. So things like ascites, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, variceal hemorrhage, and hepatic encephalopathy. And what's the time course here from, say, infection to cirrhosis in those who are going to develop cirrhosis? I mean, to, to advance cirrhosis. Yeah, usually it takes about seven years to advance each stage of 
hepatic fibrosis. So typically we're talking about 25 to 30 years after acute infection that a subset of individuals will go on to advanced hepatic fibrosis or cirrhosis. Yeah. When you hear the numbers, it's surprising because, of course, there are a lot of people with hepatitis C, but the prevalence in that population of cirrhosis is very high. And yet you also have this very long window in which you can intervene, which is, of course, why we have you on the podcast today to talk about this, because we can intervene, right? And that's the beauty, because in 2014, really, the advent of all oral direct-acting antiviral agents completely revolutionized how we care for chronic hepatitis C. And it's one of the few, as you alluded to in the beginning of this podcast, amazing success stories that we can now cure with 95% plus likelihood a chronic viral infection. So to recall in my early days, treating people with 48 weeks of pegylated interferon and ribavirin and all of the attendant severe adverse effects to now, in essence, an 8 to 12-week duration of antiviral treatment with almost no side effects, all oral, easily tolerated, is really the holy grail of a, a chronic hepatitis C treatment. Yeah, it's remarkable. So I want to spend a fair amount of time on those treatment regimens, but I want to go back and actually, there was a few questions that people had asked me and the one to capture. And that was, interestingly, some of the questions about what hepatitis can do that is sort of extrahepatic in terms of arthritis, in terms of porphyria, and some of these other things, because these things show up for folks as well. And I wanted to cover that before we jump into the regimens. You both have some experience with the extrahepatic manifestations of hepatitis C. What, what's real in that and what's not real? Jess, do you mind if I take this just because we've done a lot of research in the area? The thought, Kendall, is that the chronic inflammation that is associated with hepatitis often is associated with release of cytokines and that these cytokines really have a number of untoward effects in organ systems outside the liver. And the combination of this chronic inflammation and these cytokines can induce damage in the kidneys, damage in the coronary arteries. You know, our group has done a lot of work actually on, you mentioned arthritis, and we've done a lot of work on bone disease and have demonstrated that in high-resolution peripheral quantitated CT, that in essence, there is endothelial thinning of cortical bone in patients with chronic hepatitis C compared to uninfected controls mimicking a pattern that is seen in other chronic inflammatory disorders. So, and it does appear that more hepatic inflammation may be implicated as a worsening factor associated with greater extrahepatic complications. So I, I think it's this combination of chronic hepatitis, uh, chronic inflammation, and the cytokine release that's really driving a lot of these extrahepatic complications. And what we have seen in clinical practice uh, and what we're studying right now as to sort of the biology of this is that cure of hepatitis C does appear to ameliorate these extrahepatic complications. And it leads to people having improved cognitive function, reductions in bone and joint disorders, 
improvements of skin abnormalities. So these are additional off-shot benefits from antiviral treatment, not just directed at the liver. I had a patient years ago, 20 years ago, I was just out of residency. He was one of my first patients in practice, and he had hepatitis C, and I don't even know if he'd gotten interferon. It was very new, and, you know, he had terrible arthritis, and we could never really figure out why nothing really was effective. He would go to Jamaica and just sit on the beach and spend months on end just sitting on the beach because the only thing that would make him feel good. And now, looking back, I know that he just had all of these extra-articular or extra-hepatic manifestations of hepatitis C, I think, and that was really devastating for him at the time. So we talked about the natural history of developing into cirrhosis and hepatocellular cancer, and then you just answered a question I had, and that was whether or not these extra-hepatic manifestations, the risk is reduced, and we'll get to how we screen and monitor people who have been treated who still have some residual cirrhotic damage. But let's go back and just talk about the screening. It seems it's universal. I don't actually know the laws out there now in terms of what the standards are for screening for hepatitis C. It almost All my primary care patients, it comes up as a flag, as something to do. There may be some standards behind that. Jesse, can you speak to that? Yeah, yeah. So as you mentioned, screening is now recommended by both the Center for Disease Control, but also the United States Preventive Service Task Force. And in 2020, they both organizations recommended universal one-time screening for all adults. USPSTF recommended up 18 to 79. And this really speaks to the need to transition away from risk-based screening since we really found that about 50% of people were being missed with that risk-based screening. Now, how does that translate into laws for screening? That's still a bit state-specific. Currently in the state of Pennsylvania, where we practice, there's a state mandate on the books from 2016, Act 87, which mandates offering of screening for hepatitis C and linkage to care for those born between 1945 and 65. So it hasn't yet caught up to the current recommendations for screening all adults. State of New York has has similar mandates, but again, varies by each state. It is certainly, since it's endorsed by the CDC and U.S. Preventative Service Task Force, it's reimbursable as part of that care and really is is critical to identifying people before they develop those more severe end-stage manifestations of hepatitis C, cirrhosis, and hepatocellular carcinoma. And it really helps to reduce stigma by just offering this test to every adult since people either may not recall risk factors or may be reluctant to disclose those factors due to stigma. And it also takes away any clinician concern about, you know, is this person truly have hepatitis C if there's no aminotransferase elevations or trying to find a, a whether or not there's an indication to screen somebody by putting out these universal recommendations. Particularly look with LFT changes, we know about a quarter of people with hepatitis C will have persistently normal aminotransferases, so, so helpful to have this universal guideline. Um, you know, beyond the universal one-time screening, there's certainly people who should have ongoing assessments for hepatitis C exposure. This is often people with those risk factors we, we discussed previously. So those who inject drugs or men who have sex with men, people on hemodialysis. And additionally, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology also recommends hepatitis C screening with every pregnancy. So you'll likely see obstetricians screening their patients more frequently too. And so that's really, I think, where the screening is coming into play to try and become a more regular assay. 
and routine health care. And so there's two, two tests, right? So the first is an antibody screen followed by an RNA-PCR. Uh, is it an automatic reflex now? Yeah, that's preferred. And as you can imagine, it, you know, the reflex is needed to confirm if somebody has current infection, that is with detectable viremia, or past slash spontaneously cleared infection with no detectable viremia. So most laboratory assays, most commercial laboratory assays will have an option for a hepatitis C antibody, IgG or total, with an automatic reflex to a PCR assay. And this is oftentimes quantitative, so you get a viral load amount with that assay. And what's Im important to know is that depending on where the potential exposure may have occurred, it's important to understand the, the potential window period for those antibodies as well. We know that antibodies can take maybe about two or three months to really develop following exposure. And so this would be a standard screening test to complete an antibody with reflex to viral load if that antibody is reactive. However, if somebody had an exposure within that window period, then potentially going straight to a viral load would be helpful since viremia can be detected much sooner, about a, a week or two after that exposure. So this is where you guys are going to help us peek behind the veil because in primary care, we'll do a screen, we'll get a positive test, an antibody test, a reflex PCR is positive, patient has active, albeit maybe indolent hepatitis C, and needs to be seen. So, Jesse, let's say we send this patient to you. What do you do? What happens then? This is peeking behind the veil a little bit. Yeah. My first visit is often the pre-treatment evaluation, and this is really to take an opportunity to talk to the patient about hepatitis C transmission, hepatitis C natural history, and talk about these amazing curative therapies that we have particularly talking about the anticipated treatment duration, the, the optimal treatment outcomes with strict adherence, and also to set the stage for the challenges that may lie ahead, particularly with prior authorization of medications. Part of that pretreatment evaluation, a critical part, I think, is to really assess the degree of hepatic fibrosis. And fortunately, we don't require liver biopsies these days, so since we have a number of non-invasive modalities to assess liver fibrosis. And what we do here at, at our clinic is to assess liver fibrosis with transient lastography. And that gives us a nice point of care test with a quantitative number that correlates to the metavir stages of fibrosis, with F of 4 being cirrhosis, of 0 being essentially a normal liver. So that's generally the first part of that at the, at the pretreatment evaluation. I also make sure that people have been screened for other bloodborne uh, pathogens, specifically HIV and hepatitis B because of those common routes of transmission. Additionally, we've had a hepatitis A outbreak in Philadelphia for the last couple of years with transmission noted to be via percutaneous routes too. So viremic people are transmitting often through injection drug use. So we'll also assess for hepatitis A as both hep A and hep B serologies can inform our vaccination needs. And lastly, if we do see people co-infected with hepatitis B, specifically those with detectable surface antigen that may impact how we treat them because they're somewhat antagonist, if you will, hepatitis B and hepatitis C infection. And so once we treat hepatitis C, there's the potential for a hepatitis B flare in that setting. So some patients warrant initiation of hepatitis B therapy in that setting prior to hep C treatment. But I think one of the things that you're getting a sense of, Kendall, from Jesse's response is we do a fair amount of education 
at the initial visit because most of the patients that we see, they don't know anything about hepatitis C. They don't have, they generally don't have any symptoms and they're not really clear totally why they're presenting to us. So really spending the time, as Jesse had said, to really go over what is hepatitis C, how might you have acquired it, what is it doing to your liver and to organs outside of your liver, assessing about alcohol use and how this critically important cofactor could further damage the liver, and really doing a good medication reconciliation to, to look for what possible medications might interfere in the form of drug interactions with the antivirals, really critical in addition to all the laboratory studies that she mentioned. And you mentioned elastography, and this is a new thing, right? So many of us weren't exposed to this in residency. Can you go over what this is? Yeah, it's a point-of-care test. It's been available since around 2013 in the United States, and more and more liver clinics, viral hepatitis clinics, are starting to try and access them because of the availability of a relatively reliable point-of-care fibrosis assessment. So this is, patients need to be fasting for at least three hours. If they're not, that any food can actually increase the blood flow to the liver and falsely elevate the fibrosis readings from that transient elastography. But basically, it sends sound waves through a, a pulsatile probe to get a measure of how elastic or how stiff that liver is. And using a proprietary calculation can measure that sound wave flow to come up with a quantitative value of that fibrosis. And so that's incredibly helpful, a rapid test, non-invasive. It's unfortunately not currently approved for women who are pregnant or people with a pacemaker or defibrillator, but otherwise quite reliable, taking about 5-10 minutes max to complete. It, again, gives us a point-of-care printout right away, and it gives us a measurement that's essentially calculated over a, a mean of 10 individual measurements. So quite reliable to, to get a sense of not only how much fibrosis is there, but that stage as well. I would just add that, you know, because we, we're talking about determining liver fibrosis, it's actually an incredibly important part of chronic hepatitis C evaluation because you really want to identify individuals with advanced hepatic fibrosis and cirrhosis because those are the individuals that you really are ultimately, you really want to make sure that they're going to get antiviral therapy. But these are the individuals that as primary care clinicians, you want to make sure that they are going to be monitored on an every six-month basis for primary liver cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, these are the individuals that you're really going to want to refer for upper endoscopy to monitor for varices. And these are the people that you really want to make sure that you are evaluating for decompensated liver disease. And there is what's called a child turcot pew score that's based on the presence of encephalopathy, ascites, uh, bilirubin, the albumin cutoff, INR cutoff, that you really want to make sure, because if these individuals are manifesting uh, laboratory findings or signs of decompensated liver disease, then hepatology referral is really crucial in these individuals. 
So let's talk about treatment, and I want to come back to this afterwards, sort of the post-treatment management, because then we're going to have to, you know, this whole question of how much damage is there to begin with and who needs to follow them after the treatment and so forth. But let's talk about the treatment regimens. You know, those of us who followed this from afar a little bit went through the interferon and pedulated interferon phase and then various regimens that were genotype specific. But now it seems that the most effective regimens, it doesn't seem to matter which genotype you have. Is that right? Yeah, there's four first-line direct-acting antiviral regimens that are available, and two of those are pan-genotypic. They cover all genotypes from one to six. And what's nice is that most insurers have at least one of those pan-genotypic regimens on their formulary. So it's easily accessible and to just pick that regimen for initial treatment. I think what's important when thinking about treatment, too, is thinking about who should get treated, which is really just about everybody. And really, the only people who should not be treated are those with a life expectancy less than, than one year from non-liver-related disease processes. I'd like to highlight this because there's still providers that think there needs to be a period of abstinence among people who with substance use disorder or people with ongoing alcohol use disorder. And we really know that People with substance use disorder can certainly achieve cure at rates as high as those without, so really not a reason to withhold treatment in that setting. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, because this has progressed so much. A lot of us have these sort of ideas in our head from previous sort of intermediate stages, if you will, of the treatment paradigm, where you had to be selective, and of course there was a toxicity associated with each of the regimens and so forth. So now, knowing that you know they're pretty much universally effective and universally tolerated, it changes the whole dynamic. These direct-acting antivirals have heralded in, for the first time, the opportunity that potentially hepatitis C could be eliminated as a public health problem. I was reading a little bit about the Egyptian experience as I was preparing for this, and apparently it was 20% of the Egyptian population had hepatitis C, and they have made great strides towards eliminating it in the population. Yeah, as the country actually of Georgia has done, and also just really focused the attention on the public health infrastructure, given the high prevalence in that country as well. So just digging down in the regimens and talking about them again, we don't have to go through the specific regimens. It's probably not important that all of us know these, but just to know that it's a 12-week regimen, relative, it's all PO, it's all non-toxic. Um, what else should we know, Jesse, about these? Of the four regimens, they're all combinations of at least two drugs, and these are, just for reference purposes, NS3-4A protease inhibitors or NS5B polymerase inhibitors, NS5A directed inhibitors. And these combinations are anywhere between 8 weeks to 12 weeks for a treatment duration with that duration dependent upon which regimen is selected largely. They are incredibly well tolerated with the most common side effects that I quote to my patients are things like headache, GI upset, and fatigue, with really fatigue, I think, being the most common at around anywhere between the 15 to 30 percent, depending on the regimen. Headache, I think, is probably one of the lesser side effects that are in that common realm, anywhere between 5 and 10 percent. So I find that the fatigue is something that's most of my patients notice, but with that advanced counseling, advanced warning, they notice it and say, oh, it didn't bother me. And I've had nobody who's discontinued their direct acting antiviral regimen because of 
these side effects. So again, incredibly safe, incredibly well tolerated, and unfortunately, incredibly effective. And then if you have somebody come back, they've completed their eight to 12 weeks, what is your next step? What do you do then? I think, Kendall, it really depends on whether or not they're cirrhotic. If an individual is not cirrhotic and achieves cure, there's really no follow-up recommended for non-cirrhotic patients. You just want to make sure you're advising them against excess alcohol use. And particularly if they're at risk for hepatitis C reinfection, which can occur just because you have hepatitis C antibody, it's not protective against reinfection. We spend a fair amount of time counseling on risk reduction. And for those at risk, we're typically testing for hepatitis C RNA annually or at any point if they come in with elevated liver aminotransferases. However, if, the, if an individual is after treatment cirrhotic and achieves cure, even in that individual, we're continuing to perform liver ultrasounds every six months for hepatocellular carcinoma surveillance. We're referring them for upper endoscopy to evaluate for varices. We're doing the same kind of risk counseling on risk reduction and really making sure in that subgroup of patients with cirrhosis that we're advising abstinence from alcohol. And, you know, we all know that within the cirrhotic group, there's people with early cirrhosis that just may, even if we're doing an ultrasound, we'll see early cirrhosis, even without any other manifestations. But those people need to be followed too, even if their INR is normal, their albumin's normal, they don't have any varices and so forth. That's absolutely correct. And you know that from elastography, right? So a certain level of fibrosis tells you that a patient is cirrhotic, even if they don't have any other manifestations, right? That's exactly right. It's, I mean, technically, cirrhosis is a pathological diagnosis. Obviously, as Jesse mentioned, we're not doing liver biopsies. So we're looking either with elastography or in some instances, it will be identified on abdominal imaging where either a, an ultrasound or a CT or MRI may note cirrhotic changes in the liver. So some of these you're going to send back to us and say, all good, nothing to do, just watch the Tylenol dosing, watch the alcohol, watch any risk factors for being reinfected. What percentage would you say are in that stage that they leave and they're done and there's nothing else to do? I don't know if there's data on this. This might be just an estimate off the top of your head. I would say that for probably the majority of the people that we see who do not have advanced hepatic fibrosis cirrhosis, they're done. And we, in essence, discharge them from our practice. It's just the individuals who really we continue to follow who either are unable to achieve cure, in which case we go to an alternative regimen, or those individuals have advanced fibrosis cirrhosis, in which case we continue to see them even after they achieve cure for all this kind of monitoring. Jesse, anything to add there? Yeah, I think about 20% of our patients coming into the clinic for hepatitis C treatment are cirrhotic. And certainly, I think that number has held, as Vin's natural history discussion mentioned. And so really, it, that's really the, the patient population that we'll continue to follow to ensure that HCC screening is completed every six months. And while I also counsel my patients that what's nice with hepatitis C cure is that progression of fibrosis from hepatitis C is arrested once that cure is achieved. And in about maybe 40, 45% of people can actually see some improvement in that degree of fibrosis. Yet, even if on elastography following cure, they're no longer cirrhotic, they still warrant those ongoing 
HCC screening ultrasounds until we have more data to, to suggest otherwise. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Jessica. That was a question of what do you do with the patients that improve over time and so forth. So that's very helpful. Unfortunately, at this point, there's no hard and fast rules as to when to stop the surveillance. Basically, we have to count the pre-hepatitis C treatment liver fibrosis staging. And we're still, as Jesse mentioned, trying to figure out what are the parameters, the findings that may herald when we should stop surveillance for complications of cirrhosis and hepatic fibrosis assessment. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. But I think it's a key point for primary care physicians that if somebody comes into our practice, they've been treated, and maybe we have a CT image that shows that they're cirrhotic, that these folks, if they need to be monitored every six months for hepatocellular cancer, because that's the trigger that we need to follow those people. Indeed. So it strikes me with the tolerability of these regimens and sort of the ease of this approach that we could potentially take some business away from the two of you, that some of this may migrate into primary care over time. There may be some models of that already that I'm not aware of, but have been discussion of hep C treatment within primary care. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful idea. Yeah, I mean, there has been. I mean, I sat on the National Academies of Science, Engineering, Medicine's Hepatitis B and C Elimination Committee, and we acknowledged very, very early on in 2017 that if we're going to have any hope to eliminate hepatitis C, we simply don't have the capacity if you're just going to rely on either the hepatologists or infectious disease practitioners. And I think we're already beginning to see, even at Penn, in, in some practices where primary care clinicians are taking up the mantle to to treat hepatitis C, and we're all for that. And I think, unfortunately, plenty of patients with hepatitis C that are still around, and as I mentioned, with the increase in incidence of acute hepatitis C in the opioid epidemic, we need all the help we can get. I think the other thing to know is that we're always certainly available to provide advice to clinicians just in terms of questions or things that might come up to to help them get through. I think the only challenge with implementing hepatitis C care in the primary care setting is the prior authorization requests that the insurers are asking to be completed to demonstrate medical need. They can be fairly time-consuming to get around, but if you have the infrastructure and the staff to assist, it can help you get over the goal line. Yeah, I have to agree. I think treating hepatitis C within primary care really decreases those barriers that may be insurmountable for patients to access that care if they had to go to another provider or location. So it's a welcomed introduction in, into this space for to have primary care here. And with tools like the HCV guidelines on the org website, it really is quite easy to select a hepatitis C regimen, particularly for those treatment-naive patients without cirrhosis or chronic hepatitis B. And there's very easy, streamlined strategies to really minimize any monitoring that's needed, short of cure, to be assessed three months or 12 weeks specifically after completion of treatment. And as Vin mentioned, I think from a, a logistics standpoint, that prior authorization challenges is really the time-consuming aspect of delivering hepatitis C care in the clinic. And so if there's somebody that can address prior auth needs, notes, some of the unique asks from each insurer with regards to that pretreatment evaluation, to have that medication approved, 
can help patients navigate the potential need to use a mail-order specialty pharmacy and stay on top of those refills. That's really, I think, the legwork that's needed. It's really not selecting which regimen, you know, if you're able to do that med evaluation to evaluate for drug-drug interactions, counsel the patient. It's really that subsequent step with approval that becomes burdensome. Yeah, and I mean, the hcvguidelines.org, the way we have created it, where a practitioner could determine is the patient treatment naive or treatment experienced, what is their genotype, do they have cirrhosis or not, it's very menu-driven to facilitate implementation of hepatitis C care in practice. And sort of new this year, we've introduced simplified approaches for those with and without compensated cirrhosis to further enable clinicians to be able to incorporate hepatitis C care in their practice. It would seem that it ensures best interest to make it easily accessible. One of the challenges with insurance is that people don't have the same insurance for that long. And because they switch around, the insurer who pays for the hepatitis C treatment is not necessarily the one that's going to benefit from it in the reductions long term. But if we can get everybody on the same page about this, it would make sense to make it as easy as possible for everybody to be treated. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the price and cost of complications of cirrhosis and advanced liver disease and hospitalizations and transplants and to be able to prevent that with an 8 to 12 week course of therapy that has over 95% chance of cure i think it's fairly amazing and it's multiple studies now have come out showing the cost effectiveness of these regimens well, one other question before we close, and that is, what if somebody does fail? You mentioned 95%, so there's a f- small percentage of people who do fail a regimen. Do you try then another regimen? Yeah, so so there is actually a salvage regimens out there, and, and the one that we often reach for is a combination of three of those medications, Vosevi being the brand name, having the NS5A direct inhibitors, the NS5B polymerase inhibitors, and one of the protease inhibitors. And That's generally a one pill once a day for 12 weeks for treatment for people who have failed one of these earlier DAA regimens. There are other agents out there to either use an extended duration of some of the other agents. And for those who fail beyond that, some very limited data-driven recommendations to use a number of combinations with or without ribavirin as well. So still options out there to treat treatment failures after those initial treatment regimens. I would imagine that it's virtually 100% in eventually finding a regimen that will cure them. I think so. Vin has certainly had more experience than I have so far. Vin, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I was going to say, just on the guidelines, we discussed some of the more challenging cases, and the number of multiple failures is exceedingly low because so many people are ultimately curing with the first round, first regimens, and as just mentioned, the Vosevi, the Vosevir, Vilpatosvir, Voxilaprovir is so highly potent and successful that it's really rare that with any of the first and the second line agents that we can't cure anyone. Well, this has been a terrific discussion. I really appreciate both of you coming on. Uh, It's actually been an education for many of us. I don't think we realize how much progress has been made. I certainly didn't. So before we leave, is there anything that you want to say to the Penn primary care community? I would say please use us as resources as you look to take on hepatitis C treatment. We are always available to help provide insight in how to make that a successful endeavor in your practice. 
I think you've said it all, Jesse. Well, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Jesse. And thanks to the audience out there for listening to another Penn Primary Care podcast. Please join us again next time. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only. For specific questions, please contact your physician. And if an emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency department.